I think it's a shame that we call these software deals subscriptions because when a magazine does me wrong, I can cancel the subscription and I'm not hurting from it. But if I try to cancel one of these SaaS deals, I'm in a world of hurt here. And in particular, I can't believe that they want to keep charging me even more to use less. Growing a business requires a holistic approach that extends beyond sales and marketing. This approach needs alignment among people, processes, and technologies. So if you're a business owner, operations, or finance leader looking to learn growth strategies from your peers and competitors, you're tuned into the right podcast. Welcome to the WBS Podcast, where scalable growth using business systems is our number one priority. Now, here is your host, Sam Gupta. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the WBS Podcast. I'm Sam Gupta, your host and principal consultant at digital transformation consulting firm Elevate IQ. The software and technology world is evolving daily, and so are the software contracts. As pricing becomes easier to start using software for small to medium-sized businesses, the incremental cost could be unexpected if you don't understand the new pricing models. While technology is making easier to create and sign contracts, it also provides software vendors freedom to create contracts that may not have legal binding or might change even after signing the contract. In today's episode, we invited an expert panel of cross-functional experts for a live interview on LinkedIn who brings significant legal, software and IT contracting, manufacturing, sales, and ERP implementation expertise. But most importantly, a manufacturer who has owned several manufacturing companies and lived through the contracting challenges over many years. We also invited a guest who appears on several expert witness cases should there be a conflict between the software vendor, implementation partner, and the customer. With that, let's get to the conversation. Hello, everybody. We have a very exciting panel here. We have some of the amazing panelists, and I'm actually going to give a quick rundown of the panel and then we will ask them to introduce themselves. So starting with uh, Michael, Michael has a lot of background in the manufacturing. He has owned his own manufacturing company, so he has a lot of background in signing the software, and he brings that real manufacturing uh, environment experience. Mike um, has tons and tons of background with the uh, IT procurement. He brings a lot of experience overall from the IT infrastructure as well as from the procurement space. We have Brian Sumer. He is a big influencer. He writes for Diginomica. He writes for ZDNet. He goes through a lot of different, uh, you know, expert witness cases where he goes through the contract nuances. So he's going to bring tons and tons of stories to the panel. And then we have Tim Harrison. He brings a lot of hardware background that we don't have in the panel. And then finally, we have Chris. He has roughly 20 years of experience doing a lot of ERP work. So tons and tons of excitement around the panel. So now I'm actually going to be starting with you, Michael. Michael, do you want to introduce yourself first? Thanks, Sam. Um, I'm Mike Schlagenhofer. Uh, I've been actually exposed to the ERP and digital transformation from the manufacturing side. So I was working first in manufacturing and then in the 80s or 90s when uh, digital documentation softwares became available to make manufacturing lives easier. That's when I was actually first exposed to the digitalization and manufacturing on the contracts that come with, with the software and the hardware stuff that we used to buy. 
Okay, amazing. Thank you so much for that introduction, uh, Michael. And now I am going to move to Mike. Mike, do you want to introduce yourself in quick two to three sentences? <laughs> sure. Uh, Michael Bryan. Um, I'm Chief Procurement Officer and Head of Contract AI. Uh, but I've had a lot of experience in software over the years as running infrastructure for an investment bank and uh, also as uh, running uh, IT procurement for BP globally. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much for that intro, Mike. Now, Brian, I'm going to move to you. Would you like to introduce yourself? Well, you already kind of introduced me. I'm I'm that guy on the other end of the negotiating table that makes vendors really nervous. So uh, we'll leave it at that and save some of the great pearls for when we get into the heart and soul of today's conversation. Back at you, Sam. Love it. Tim, do you want to introduce yourself quickly? Yeah, so Tim Harrison here. Uh, I'm the founder of Parity RFP. I have uh, over uh, 15, 16 years of experience in the warehouse and manufacturing automation space, including uh, implementing uh, inventory control and WES systems. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much, Tim, for that intro. Chris, do you want to introduce yourself quickly? Yeah, absolutely, Sam. Thank you. So I'm Chris Garadini, president and owner of Turnkey Technologies. We're a 70, 27-year-old uh, Microsoft Dynamics partner. So I've been in the uh, the reseller channel for 30 years. So I'm the guy that's selling software and sending master services agreements, licensing agreements, et cetera, et cetera. So should be a fun conversation. Amazing. Love it. So we have a lot of experience here in the panel. And I am going to be starting with one question. And that is going to be for, for you, Mike. Since you have spent a lot of time in buying traditional hardware and traditional IT infrastructure. So what are some of the things that you have seen in your experience while procuring that? And what are the things that you are seeing right now when you compare the IT contract today versus yesterday? Yeah, I think a lot of things are really changing. Most things in the past were, were more on-premise, uh, more tied to certain machines. Now we're seeing more things are, are SaaS or, you know, I think everybody has a, a an as-a-service type uh, acronym for for any, any type of permutation to that. But I think it's different. I think um, how we buy software, when it was on-premise, you know, the way that we licenses the commercial constructs that we did that upon, very different. We look at cloud as sometimes, uh, you know, it's the panacea of a pay, pay per drink. But I think what we find is actually it, it's very similar to uh, the on-premise model where there is a significant commitment. Even though it, it initially sold as something that's highly variable, uh, when, especially for enterprises, when you actually get down to it, you know, there's always a significant commit that's behind it. If I could jump in, let me echo that remark and let me give you a couple of data points. One of the reasons that it's starting to look a lot like the on-premise world is because a lot of old on-premise software vendors and implementers have made the move to the cloud and they brought with them all their old bad habits, bad contracts, uh, punitive attacks on customers. They bring it all there. Okay, so... Uh, there's no doubt about it. And I know um, our software vendor colleague here is probably cringing as I say this, but that's the truth of the matter. And yet what's fascinating, what, what listeners might want to pay attention to is if you look over the last 20 years, what has happened to the price of computing? It's gone down. What's happened to the price of storage? What's happened to the cost of memory? And everything else has gone down but not the price of software. It continues to keep going up and up and up. And it's rare to ever find a software vendor who actually uses open source code and passes economies of scale back down to their customers. So I don't care what the deployment method is. Uh, you know, I know greed when I see it, and I see a lot of it right now. Back at you, Sam. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much, Brian, for that. And I knew that this is going to be a powerful show. 
So, Chris, I'm pretty sure now you are going to have some comment there because the comment was for you. It's greed. No, this is your greed. opportunity. Is it greed? You know, again, Brother. once you get the hook, once they get the hook in you, you're right. You're you're hooked for life. And I think that even as I would articulate, you know, they're gonna. It's a lost leader. They're, it's so cheap. It's free, right? Get in there. Once you're in there, then nick, 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 you will see incrementally rises across the the universe. But you're right. Big shift. And on prem, we had such a small percentage of the users that had to have a license. Now. The philosophy is everybody has to have a license. So I think there has been a bit dramatic change just in looking at the organizational footprint where, you know, in the past, you didn't have to license everybody. But now I think that is, to your point, um, there's there's a motivation there to, to drag that in. Some flexibility, though, depending on the licensing programs. I mean, compared to the can shrink, can grow. I mean, there is some of that that's true if you're doing, uh, I'm a cloud service provider. So again, in the CSP world, again, just that we can shrink, we can grow. Under enterprise agreements with Microsoft, they typically like to sell you a fixed price block, whether you use it or lose it. So that resembles more of an on-prem and pricing model in some degree. So we compete with the Microsoft Enterprise sellers just because we like the more flexible licensing programs. But uh, it has changed for sure. You know, if I want to add something to it, like I said before, we got into the digitization in our company back then in the 90s. And that was the thing is you had to buy this whole software package on site when you knew you used only a very small percentage of it. And then you wanted to modify something and immediately there was a bill coming in, right? You know, you got like $5,000 worth of consulting services up front. And then you wanted something, hey, we need to customize it so it interacts better for us. And immediately went the cost up. Now, the question I would have to the panel here is, has that changed now that the software is more off-premises or is this still the same thing? That that when you when you get in... The upgrades and all of this and the maintenance costs are really super. And I, mine, I, I say it that way. Well, let me let me jump in, Michael. I think the uh, I think the problem's actually gotten a lot worse lately, and that's because what's going on behind the scenes is uh, software vendors are paranoid about losing account control, and what they want to do is not just give you a subscription. But they want to control the technology stack underneath the application software. They want to put you on their hyperscaler, not somebody else's. And they want to control even the services ecosystem. And they want to determine who's going to sell and implement the solution as well as who gets to maintain it, even if it's multi-tenant. I'm astonished at, at customers who buy a multi-tenant product but then have it hosted on somebody else's data center and paying a third party to maintain it for them. So it's about account control is what's going on right now. And they're trying, vendors are trying to really grow the pie by, and, uh, and take every part of the stack if they can as part of their picture. Where this is really acute are for vendors who can't really grow their footprint. They're, they're maybe like a large enterprise vendor. They've got all the Fortune 500 accounts, and uh, they need to show ever-increasing revenue numbers to Wall Street. And the only way they can please Wall Street is to try and get more than dollars coming elsewhere, and that's one avenue to pursue. Interesting okay. comments. Of course, my experience is pure Microsoft, and we don't necessarily live in that world. And I think as you look at the applications in the Microsoft Dynamics Cloud and, you know, the maintenance to that point, the, the multi-tenant, you get your updates. There's there's a very good total cost of ownership after you're up and living on the platform. Again, I can't speak for the other vendors. The, the larger product, the finance and operations solution, which was the Dynamics AX, that's large. That's still a single tenant Azure platform, but Microsoft does manage that environment and does do the maintenance on it. So so there is some good cost of ownership on those two platforms. Certainly the modern workplace, the Office 365, everybody gets updated. 365 customer engagement, everybody gets updated. And again, that strategy is more buy what you need to that point as opposed to you have to eat this whole pie. And I think you're right. In the old days, you had to buy everything. And the other problem was emotional decisions about, oh, I need that, but I don't want to pay for it. So 
yeah, there's a, there's a myriad of things that are driving that behavior. But uh, so let's say if I'm the the manufacturing executive and I am trying to buy a piece of software, tell me what are the factors that I should be looking in a contract. Tim, do you want to start with that by any chance? Yeah, I, I would say that from the manufacturing side or operational side, and you're looking at some of these systems, whether it's a Microsoft Dynamics or an Eclipse or you know WMS or you you, you can name it. You really, at this point in time, you have to look at what's the upfront cost. You know, yep. what do you have to pay today, and then what do you have to pay tomorrow? And a lot of times, you know, the upfront cost because now things are cloud-based and subscription-based. Oh, it doesn't seem like it's that big a deal. But then you get into the support agreements, and that's where a lot of the, um, I guess, the upselling is occurring. Is that to maintain your systems? You know, provide even, you know, for example, uh, CAD software, 3D CAD software. Yeah. You know, you pay the one time for that CAD software. But then if you have any issue at all, even if you need to migrate a, a license or just deal with a licensing issue, that's where they get you on the subscription side of things um, and support side. So, yeah, I, it's to me, it's very plain. It's, you know, what do you have to pay now? What do you have to pay in the future? And then there are nuances, you know, in those contracts. That I'm sure other guys can elaborate on. I would agree. You get to a five-year return on investment. That way you really look at those total costs five years yeah. out. Because I think that's where some things get cheaper over time. Some things, to your point, have maintenance there is maintenance and to back to your point about support agreements and so i think that's that's normally we do a five-year pro forma to really eyes wide open i think is the fairness so yeah well yeah. you made you made a good point on the pro forma on the you know the maintenance package for the first five years you get a free right i i turn it around and i had to put this in in my business to a lot of my my business partners in simple terms it's just like buying a car there's a cost for the car right there's a maintenance cost there's an insurance cost and a lot of times in the software side, at least that was my experience on the beginning, I think I got smarter, we got smarter from the manufacturing and asking those questions that we're discussing here. And I think the software companies got smarter by saying, okay, there's a front a cost after after you implement. It's just like a car, there's so much hidden cost, you know, yeah, this is the car, it costs this much, but I want, I want whatever, a heated seat, well, now the price goes up, right? I want this service, <laughs> I want that service. So it, it's very similar to buying a car, but I think what, 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 I experienced is in the beginning, and again, I'm going back to the 90s when the stuff was on premises. Anytime you, you needed to upgrade something, it was a team consensus. You had to go with the other users, which I think today that is eliminated for most of the softwares that, you know, if you want to pay for it, we do it for you. The other users don't get it. And then sometimes later, I paid for it and they're going to throw it in for the next guy and his CAD system. You know, we came up with the idea, we want this function. Mm -hmm. They create it. They charge up and two years later, they come out with a new version. Everybody gets it for free. So there's a lot of, I think, similarity to, and I'm not going to want to make the car market people look bad, but there's a lot of hidden costs. And you got to be smart. You got to ask it. You got to mind really, really question them about all of those things. And you want those terms in the agreement. So back to that, we put a three year or a 36 month price point on your licensing. So if we're giving people advice, absolutely get, get licensing pricing terms. If they're available, look for a 30, you, you know, there's different SKUs out there that you can buy. Sometimes they're 12-month SKUs or 36-month SKUs, and even in the Microsoft world. And upon renewal, the anniversary, they could transition to a new SKU. You get a 36-month SKU, guess what? No transition. You know that cost isn't going to change for three years. So that's a specific tactic if you're buying Microsoft licensing. There's a couple of different SKUs that you can pick from. So make sure that's contractual. That's a perfect example. Mm -hmm. um, on services, I would say the same thing to your service provider. Look for some rate lock, okay? So, again, a lot of people want to do a CPI or more, and that's where that could be a surprise as well. And I think as you try to get contractual terms in there for services, 
And rates, that's another one that you would want to get a rate lock in there. Meaning, if you're doing an implementation, ask for a rate lock, and you're starting now, ask for a rate lock through the end of 22, frankly. So don't don't think short-term because the partners will come in and transition you. Not to exceeds, again, another contractual term. Look for not to exceeds in there so that you don't get a surprise. I had a, a customer show up that had a $600,000 project, and they paid $1.2 I'm like, I don't know how that happens. You know, I certainly, certainly can't, can't charge my customers because... My contracts say 10%. If there's not a change in scope, you can't exceed 10%. So there's another couple examples of contractual terms that you should be focusing on from the partner perspective. And again, as you go back and forth, intellectual property is another one that I'll just throw out there. It hasn't been mentioned yet. But if you think about projects and who owns the ideas, right? So if you look at master services agreements, watch what rights you waive in terms of uh, intellectual property. You may have know-how that a partner could come in and all of a sudden they're out there advertising something that they took from you. So just another one of these precautions as you get into a project. You're protecting protecting yourself, protecting your terms, protecting your price, protecting your cost. Um, just a few examples yeah. I'm sure you guys yeah, can right. add. If we're going to be productive here for the people watching, right? So An important one, I think, there is the, that we're not work for hire, right? So understand the intellectual property clause because you may be paying millions of dollars for development that you, that's specific to you. But if you don't have the rights to that, you're actually paying somebody else's R&D and uh, – um, you're actually paying a higher cost than you thought because you've just raised the bar for if you have something that's your secret sauce, you know, you're allowing a competitor to actually get in there for for no cost. And that software provider is happy to grab that extra customer and provide that that insight as carrier. I think what also I would add is governance is, is so important and having governance over the and skin in the game on both sides. So in these software contracts, you need to make sure that there, there's skin from, from your software provider as well, that you have some, some, uh, some constructs in there where they can't, they, they can't change the bundle. That's something I've run into where, oh, yeah, this functionality was part of this bundle, but now it's part of something else. We call it, a, you know, we no longer support this, but now you need to buy this bundle. Um, so you need to make, you know, protect yourself. And usually you can do that through governance, get a, get a, get a head start on it, but also having constructs in there that cover the, the functionality and usability, even if it's called something else, that you still have license to that. That's also something I would recommend getting in there. I think Brian's probably come across that once or twice. A zillion times. And uh, you want, <laughs> well, let's get down to, I think the fun part of this is passing along some great tips and tricks to uh, Michael and others. So here's one that I saw recently. The contract, the vendor had discounted their document fee uh, down by 96%. And this is a company that had a lot of little tiny transactions. And that, that kind of a toll charge looked very doable you know, for the initial three-year term of the deal. But if it went back all the way to 100%, it went, something went from like 180000 a year to over... Um, four million or some ridiculous number like that. So that's one of those you got to watch out for. Any of those toll charges, toll fees, indirect access, I don't care what you want to call it, all those kind of fees that can get real, real and very painful if you didn't watch it. I agree with the uh, overall tone Chris brought out about like having a five-year kind of uh, look and lock on pricing. But I'm going to actually push the envelope and say, no, make it 10 years. Put in the RFI to vendors or the RFP, go out to 10 years, and you want to work up like three different kinds of scenarios. One that shows if your company's growing, maybe it grew inorganically possibly, uh, or if it's contracting, or if it's just muddling along. 
And what is amazing, uh, I've yet to meet the client that isn't just astonished when I show them that even when you're contracting as a company, your cost to the vendor keep going up. And that's the way the contract shows up. And that's what you got to fight and work your way down. I thought, I think it's a shame that we call these software deals subscriptions because when a magazine does me wrong. I can cancel the subscription and I'm not hurting from it. But if I try to cancel one of these SaaS deals, I'm in a world of hurt here. And in particular, I can't believe that they want to keep charging me even more to use less. But let's be honest, folks. How many of here dealt with a software vendor who actually cut their prices for you during the middle of the pandemic? Did it happen to anybody? No. And we know that huge sectors of the economy took it on the chin. And yet those SaaS contracts, the way most people accepted them, did not allow for pricing to ever actually go down. Anyway, you're right, Mike. I was chomping at the bit waiting to get in. So thank you for that. Uh, they they didn't drop the prices because they were looking at the payments. And they said, hey, 90-something percent of the people are paying. So they made no consideration because I had a couple of customers that were disparaged. We had a $60 million company dropped at $20 million, and they were help. It was a software assurance, but they got no they got no consideration. But again, the point was that people were still paying the bills. I think if there had been a larger miss on people paying, they might have considered it. But that's that's on the Microsoft side. That was the rationale I got there. So any the other comment I'll make while I'm talking, the 10-year contracts, you can't get them out of the manufacturers. I know Microsoft, yeah. they won't give you a 10-year. So to ask a vendor or a partner like me for a 10-year agreement on pricing, it's like, we can't do it. It's all, it's all based on, hey, Microsoft... It is. It's just that. In the end, you're signing their cloud service agreement. And what it says is, if you don't like it, stop using our software. I mean, it's just that there's no editing. There's no there's no arguments. But that's in the Microsoft context. But again, you kind of sign on and you kind of accept their terms and conditions or if you don't like them. As I said, don't use our products. It's very interesting. So um, but good luck. I would still ask for it. You never know. You may find a vendor out there that, that can guarantee it. But then get your lawyer to make sure contractually that it's a defensible or you can uh, can claim on that. So, well. That's what I kind of have to jump on what Brian said. You know, once you're in a software, you're kind of stuck. It's not as easy as I don't like my shoes and I go down the road and I got I got fifteen thousand uh, fifteen million dollars in in the company invested in digital run all on all in one ERP system and suddenly I have an issue with that supplier. What do I do? I'm really up against my there's a there's a little bit of monopoly in there, you know, and and, and I have on the other hand dealt with some software providers, they're excellent, mind they really take care of it. The thing is that sticks in the head is the ones that burn you, right? The ones that, like you said, you know, my company has to, it didn't, but my company had to downsize due to this. I'm using less of the system. I got less equipment hanging, but he's still charging me the price we agreed on. So, so when, when you mentioned that, that the Microsoft isn't going to, to a 10 year contract and you're not aware of anything. So if you look at a small or mid-sized company, I mean, if you have Ford Motor Company, GE, they, they big companies, you know, they got, dollars behind them and multiple sites. But if you look at the mid-sized company, there's 250,000 manufacturers in the United States that are smaller mid-sized. They don't have any leverage. We say. So what is your advice? Is anybody here that can give advice to those small and mid-sized companies saying, do you go in as multiple companies? You know, let's say, um, I think, Tim, you said something about the warehouse management. You know, if you go into that, do I go with my neighbors, the guys next to them, go in and buy that as, a, as a, you know, five companies on the one head? Or is there any advice from you guys on that? I think, Michael, I would, uh, before you got to, you need to be renegotiating the next renewal on a SaaS contract at least 24 months before it's due. The vendor won't want to do it, but you ought to do it. And you ought to call in some other players. And if you don't like the terms of your ERP vendor, their kind of take it or leave it deal or their lock-in approach, you need to bring somebody else in there. I think if you went for manufacturers, 
go to somebody like a Plex and, and I would use them to play off what you're getting from some of the other uh, vendors and see if you, you know, because frankly, I don't think it's uh, it's a good thing to reward bad behavior. And you need at least like 24 months in advance because if the vendor thinks you're going to wait until like three months before your renewals do, and then they want to start negotiating, they did that intentionally so that you have no chance to migrate to something else. I'd start getting the RFI and the RFP put together and start entertaining some new bids and see if you get some other vendors interested in maybe taking that over. But I don't reward bad behavior, and that's what I tell clients every time. And, and Michael, depending on the product line that you, you – there are other partner organizations out there. So I rep Dynamics. There's other firms in the U.S. that rep Dynamics, and so we, we have to do a great job to keep our customers, and I think that should be the premise that any partner has with you. They have to earn the relationship. So if you don't have any choices, maybe maybe you've got a product that's lightly supported, but typically there's other professionals out there that can come in and support your product. And again, if they don't, if they don't do a good job – you should interview other parties. As far as licensing with Microsoft, even though they don't do a 10-year guarantee, they're not they're not dramatically. We have not seen prices move. Even the product line, the FNO, I mean, it's within $5 of where it was five years ago. So I don't think that's not a, a dramatic concern for us, but it's it's still that it's just little stuff, but it's not it's not dramatic. Now, I can't speak for other parties. There are other people that have had problems with COVID and maybe they're desperate for revenue. That would be another thing that you got to watch out for, right? Some of those firms that are in a, in a and that's a good point. If you're going to buy a new system, the financial stability of the partner as well as the manufacturer of the solution, you want to make sure you've got a good roadmap out there. Not that that's contractual, but at the same time, I would add to that. I mean, I think it's Brian's thing about uh, negotiating and, and long, you know, giving yourself a long enough runway so that you have a viable threat of being able to move. That's key. I would also say, you know, I think we need to date more and marry less. So this idea of always buying these monolithic <laughs> things that you need to license for 10 years, I mean, I think I think, I think you need to kind of revisit that. Technology is changing so so quickly. I mean, I work for an AI firm now, and what, what we did last week is different than what we're doing this week. So I think being able to be, you know, looking, you know, this word is so overused, agile, but you have to be, there has to be some agility to be able to move with where the market is going. When you're going to buy something, if you don't know how much that product should cost, you need to go out and figure that out. There's there's a lot of different uh, companies out there and bars that can help you give you at least a better feeling for where that market is. Is, is you know you need to know what what good looks like and what you're buying and get a little bit of coaching. I think a little bit of, a little bit of effort and cost up front to be able to get, the, get you there where you're comfortable will be money well spent. Guys, we want to make sure that everybody is able to contribute uh, equally. Tim, you have not spoken for a while, and I want to make sure that you are able to share your thoughts as well. You know, to, to the point of, uh, you know, what should an SMB do as far as uh, soliciting bids for projects on software? It's really get out there, figure out who the players are, and don't be afraid to pit them against each other. There are a lot of, you know, software providers at the ERP and, you know, the WMS and all the different levels, that full stack that you need to, to run your business. And, you know, yeah, you're a small company, but that doesn't mean that you have to be, you know, the being, you know, the, the, <laughs> the tail that's being wagged, you know, by the big dog. You can go in there and you can see what, what really works for you. And then don't be make, afraid to make a change. So if you want to ask for several years as a rate lock, by all means, go for it. But be have contingencies. If, if that vendor doesn't want to play ball with you, okay, just know that you're going to have to make a change and be prepared for it. A lot of big companies, I think, kind of go into this mindset of, oh, we've got this system and this is our lifeblood. Well, you know, you've kind of really locked yourself in. And for you, if something happens to that big company, because things happen in this world, we, we've realized that change can happen very quickly. Company can come and go. 
whatever it might be, you can't be beholden to one specific vendor or you know provider. You really need to have your contingencies that way. Something does happen, you can move on very quickly. And then, you know, as far as the pricing goes, being able to leverage the different providers, vendors against each other, they're there to make money. So they're they're not going to want to lose your business. But I think like a, one of the gentlemen mentioned earlier, you got to plan for that. You can't wait to three months out because they know they have you. At that point, you're not going anywhere. But two years out, if you need to, if, it, if things aren't going the way you want, figure out who's out there. And that time frame, being able to look out that far in advance allows you to see what other technologies have now come up. Because 10 years ago, the software is nothing like what you have today. So in 10 years from now, the systems, the players that we're talking about today, they might not even be around. They might, you know, we're going to be talking about a whole different stack and different providers. So, And, and just to reiterate this, and that's what happened to us in, when I worked for a multinational. We were not happy with our software support provider. Went back and forth for years, and they finally planned out three years ago, and we switched. We literally told them, if you guys don't play ball with us, we're going to go to somebody else. We even gave them the name, and we switched. It was a little painful, but once we were implemented on transition, we really were so happy with them that we still with them. Mind the company is still using them. And again, it's that fear of I have all my eggs in this basket. And you know, a lot of lot of the IT guys, they don't really understand all the the stuff behind it. You know, they say, oh, it takes so much resources to convert. Like maybe we had four hundred thousand <laughs> pieces of equipment in the system, right? You got to convert all of that to a different yeah. system. That's a lot of manpower hours in there. But ultimately, we were so happy doing this. Because that company later got bought out by somebody else, and but people telling us it got even worse, you know. Yeah. So we were we we took the bullet after that experience and going back and forth. And when Brian mentioned it, sometimes you have to play hardball. But again, yeah. I I like the idea of don't wait three months because now it's the same thing. You got a car that has bald tires and, and fires only on three cylinders. Now you try to trade it in, you're not gonna get anything, right? You go down there six or a year before that car is is due. You can shop around, you can negotiate on the price. So I, I like that advice that you gave. Hey, if your agreement is due in five years, check it out. Yep. Changing, yep. changing ERPs isn't like jumping into a new car, though, unfortunately. So there's, there's a little bit of pain there. So just Not yet. Like, not yet. Thank you anyway. So. Yeah. I mean, I imagine at some point. Sounds great. ERP, I'd love to. I'm like, yeah, I'm out of it right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I bet at some point, though, ERPs will be, you know, like switching, you know, CRM providers. It's I doubt it. Be I no doubt big it. deal. Hey, you've got your database. And you just start plugging things together. I know right now everyone's got their little <laughs> islands, but I mean, at some point in time, people are going to be able to, you know, migrate between those systems much more easily. And I think that's where it's all headed, anyways. But thinking about those contracts, I mean, almost you, anytime you get into a contract, you really think of what's the breakup look like and kind of plan for that as part of, you know, your, your logic and reasoning in the contract. So making sure that you have the ability to get your data. I mean, so many people don't even realize where their data is even being stored. You need to be able to have access to that and also have um, uh, that level of control that the vendor is actually going to provide that for you in in a timely fashion. So to, to help with those migrations. Let's stay on that for a moment. I think a lot of clients think that if they have access to data, that, that that's going to be some magic cure-all, and it's not. I mean, they'll be able to do a dump, but it's not going to be an organized, uh, it'll be in a common delimited file basis, and it's not going to be organized with a database schema, usually, from most vendors. Yes, you could 
then pump it back up and maybe move it into a new system. But what you're going to have problems with is your external auditors at some point or regulators are want to go back and look at some point in time in the past, and they want to see your data in the context of the applications that you were using. The most important thing you need to add and as part of your termination logic in your contract is the ability to keep your data on that old vendor system for a period of like three years. And you want to have the up to one, two, three, whatever users can get in there periodically to satisfy those requirements. That way you can see the data, you can see it in an application. You're not looking at a dump of a table, if you will on a spreadsheet, that won't do you any good. It won't make the auditors happy in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. And also having that schema allows the, the new provider to be able to see how was the data set up, you know, and be able to, to map everything out so that it is, the new system can be up and running much more quickly. I mean, if you just have that data dumped, then yeah, somebody has to sort through that and that can be quite right. painful. But if they can see, hey, here are all the tables, here's how everything was connected. All right, let's start building some scripts to, to push all the data where we need to where we needed to go in the new system. That just that makes things a whole lot faster and smoother. I think with the ERPs, uh, you can get into a long-term relationship that can go sour. And uh, I mean, it'll almost feel like you're being held hostage. And you know, one trick that worked for me was get rid of the account team. You know, if you feel like they're getting predatory and you have, you know, it's tough to move. If the client's asking you asking you to remove the account team, I've had good success with that. That I think that they. It's, it needs to be a two-way street, not just them trying to get money uh, out of you. It has to be they have to deliver a certain level of service to you as well. And if it just turns into totally predatory, how can I raise raise your rates? How can I get you raise your consumption? How can I change this in a, in a way? I, I've had good success with just that. Hey, I you know I need a new account team. That's never really actually had any impact on on the performance of the service. Um, but it's definitely it's definitely sharpened uh, their focus at actually being a little bit more customer centric. Yeah. So when on our ranch, if we've got a horse that we can't break, I usually see the one of the ranch hands come in the corral uh, at, after getting bucked four and five times, and he'll bring in a small piece of two by four and he'll hit that horse upside the head with it to get his attention. And what Mike's talking about is exactly that point. You've got to get these vendors' attention. I know, like one client, we called up all the their incumbent vendors, and we told them that we're launching a factory of the future, and none of you were invited to that barbecue because you've been such bad partners. In fact, if I could tell your callers one thing to think about, you may want a partnership or partnerial relationship with an ERP vendor, but like we say in Texas, wanting and getting are two different things. You know, to, if, if a vendor's already got 10,000 customers, what do they need you for? I mean, you're not going to have some special lovey-dovey relationship with them. They don't feel the love, and they're not going to give it to you. And you need to realize, like, this is unrequited love here. And I'm going to pick up on Mike's marriage point earlier. I'm going to say that most most Americans' marriages don't last as long as many, many companies' ERP implementation or installation. Excuse me. So watch out there. I mean, you you got to do things to keep their attention. And you know, one of the things that's supposed to happen in the subscription economy is that vendors are supposed to re-earn the right to the business every single month. I don't know why the ERP industry never got that memo. Uh, but so many of those vendors definitely don't do it. Now, I know I'm being really pointed, and um, and I'm not trying to be negative today. I'm just trying to make some points because there are good vendors out there, and not every vendor, I don't want to tarnish them with the big scarlet letter on this, 
But man, there are some bad practices out there. And it's your job. If you're like Michael, you've got to be the one who goes through those contracts. And what you ought to do, Michael, is when you send out an RFI, RFP, you specify in the document, don't even bother responding if your contract you're going to send me as part of the RFI has embedded URLs. Because if they are hiding stuff on web pages, they're hoping you don't go look at it. Or those are pointers to some third party's products. And you got to figure out their contracts and what your requirements are going to be there. And they can change a website just like that. And what is your contractual recourse on that if they do it? So avoid any contract with a URL. If they can't put it in paper, in writing, then don't even deal with them. Tell them that's that's a non-starter as far as being responsive to your proposal. Actually, one technique, guys, is sometimes the RFP documents, if you have them constructed correctly, they can be a legally binding document to the partner that signs on to them. So if you think about that, where you're issuing the terms and conditions, I had, a, I had a provider, a customer issue me their terms and conditions, so which totally overruled all of mine. I mean, I didn't, I didn't pursue this project. It was a defense contractor. But that is a technique, again, depending mm-hmm. on uh, how concerned you are with the partners. But again, if you've got that kind of concern with somebody, you're probably talking to the wrong person anyway. But yeah. to, to that point, if you do an RFP, You'd have to get some legal counsel, but that can be a binding document to the partner that's bidding on your solution. Meaning if you have requirements in there and he signs on and gives you a proposal that agrees that he's meeting the the requirements of your RFP and then he fails to deliver, you've got a contractual statement of work, right? And you may have set some terms and conditions in there that you want him to honor. So it's just a little different twist. Normally it doesn't fly like that. I I don't have a lot of those documents where I'm bound to, but I've seen them where pages and pages of T's and C's that... They bind me to, and my agreements are basically moot points. So depends on what you want to get to. So there's a very interesting comment out there with respect to URL. And Brian, I want to make sure that we are able to get into the legality of that. And I'm actually seeing a lot more documents that have the embedded URL nowadays. So if they are going to change the website, what is going to happen? Is that going to be a legally binding document or is that not going to? I think it's going to be, it depends on the reference in the agreement to the URL. It may say that you're bound by the current terms and conditions, which means it's a dynamic document, which means it can't evolve. I mean, that's no different than the Microsoft licensing agreements. You don't sign them, right? There's no signature on it. It's like, okay, well, what version do I have? It's moot. You you are bound by the current agreement that's in place as, as on their website. So it really depends on the T's and C's in the agreement you signed, and that reference may be valid, even if it evolves over time. So just... So why are legal entities allowing that? Let me see. This is the first time that I actually personally have seen any URLs in a legal document. And I wasn't sure if that is even legal to put it there. Because as you correctly pointed out, the whole idea of the contract or the document is going to be the contract needs to be complete. And if it is going to be an evolving document, it's not in a complete state. Well, are these actually contracts or licensing agreements? I mean, that's, I think... Do you get into a licensing agreement? That's different than a contract for a service. The when it comes to the legality of it, if the paperwork the paperwork is what it is at that given point in time. So if you agree to a document or a group of documents, that's what you're agreeing to. But um, you know, a lot of times I think people think that these are contracts and something that's like to be held as like this stone tablet that you're walking around with. But nowadays, these are the subscriptions, right? So these are more month-to-month agreements that you're kind of bound to. So maybe your term is for a certain period of time, but you're paying a monthly fee over a given period of time. So it's, I think it's, there is a difference there between like a, the old school where you had a contract to procure a piece of software is much more different than 
hey, you've got you now have the right to use somebody's software for every month uh, because you give them money. I think there's a difference in there. So even though you are signing the contract for month to month, you are still obligated for the annual term because majority of the time when you look at any of the enterprise software agreement, they are going to be for, let's say, two years, three years, five years. It's very rare to find unless you are buying a very inexpensive SaaS product, which is really defining the contract term on a monthly basis. It is really going to be your annual contract. By the way, I'm actually going to throw in another twist there that I have personally seen. So typically the URLs that we see in the contract, they have, let's say, the shortener and you are going to have, let's say, Bitly or Google shortener. So now let's say if that this vendor who is actually providing the shortening service of the URL, what is going to happen to that? Let's say if the URL is not working anymore. Is that a legally binding document then? I push back and say, I'm not, no, I would say like, I'm not clicking any URLs. I need the actual document. You need to provide that as part of the response to my RFI. If you don't provide that document, I, I'm not going to go around hunting for, you know, these extra pieces of you know, paper. I need to have everything presented to me as it should be, because you're right. You know, that, that bit.ly, you know, if it disappears, well, what do, what do you have? There's no, you're going to go click on it and try to find it. What if it's been deleted and you know Bitly doesn't exist anymore? What what do you do then? I'd ask for that paperwork up front. So if if I buy a product from a vendor like like Chris, you know, which sells me a Microsoft product, but then the implementation is done by another party. Now I think Brian will probably, in his case, do the implementation. But if there's a third party for the implementation, which what I'm kind of relating to, a lot of larger manufacturing requiring their smaller manufacturing to connect to their material MRP, ERP, MES system. Well, you need to have a, a connecting software link because I'm using software A, they're using B. So you need to have a third party putting that, that middle piece in that makes my system talk to them where do you guys stand on that when you when you and it, it, that's in manufacturing a given you want to do business with me i want to see your inventory i want to see your operations however you have system a where do you lo look find that party that says okay i can i can be that one and, and what what do you watch out for there's a lot in there i'm not going to i, I mean if i help a client on a selection then I'll help them select and negotiate. I won't install. And you'll be surprised. There are still a lot of folks who want to do it all. Okay, but that's their risk with that. Number two is I think it's not a good idea for a service firm not to have a complete picture of what all these components are that you're talking about that need to be in place before the client gets any value. Because if there, if if it doesn't all come together and doesn't work, then the client got zero for value and has a huge cost outlay and may have a disruption to the business. And I know that sounds obvious, but I am particularly worried when I see services proposals show up, responses, and no one from the service firm even bothered to show up at the client one time. And they're going to give them a standard run-of-the-mill boilerplate kind of proposal without knowing any of the integrations or anything else. If they know anything, they learned it out of you know the RFI. And yet they'll they want to get paid for 30 days to come in and do a uh, you know a paid proposal. Then they're going to bury you in a whole bunch of change orders uh, later on. One of the more recent ones I saw wasn't a giant project, but you know they were talking about going from about a $220,000 implementation. After the first round of change orders came in, it jumped to about 1.8 million. So it can get you know, I don't think that's responsive. And I think you 
you should demand better from any potential in integrator or implementer or whatever that they're going to find all the components, put them all together, and they're going to give you at least a real price because you lose political capital and maybe your career if you keep going to the board with all these surprises like, well, I know I told you it was going to be 180000 to implement the product. Now I find out it's going to be closer to $2 million. You just lost all credibility with the board and the executive committee. That's not good. I don't know that happens if you do your due diligence correctly, Michael. So again, as you're interviewing partners, make sure you drive down, and this isn't contractual, but references. Mm -hmm. You need to talk to other customers, and you need to make sure that you really do your due diligence. Because to go from 200 to 1.8, I don't know how that happens. Yep. Certainly, it doesn't happen in our world, but what, what Brian's talking about is discovery. So, you know, there's, and it shouldn't be a fee-based. You know, we don't charge customers to come in and analyze their business requirements and do a pro forma, a solution model, a solution model, whether it's, here's the big picture, here's what's phase one, phase two, phase three, but to see the big picture, no total cost, even if you're doing it in phases, you, you deserve that. But again, I, I think that you should not be in a surprise situation where you see 200% increase over your base estimate on your implementation project. The other comment I'll make, because I write those contracts, is um, it, it's all about business process. Okay, so, you know, we articulate very clearly business processes that are in scope. Look for that level of detail in the contract. It's contractual. So when you say scope, how do you define scope? And in our context and in any business application, it is based on business processes. And so that granularity, look for it. And if there's exceptions, there's an integration lane. Those are swim lanes. Hey, I'm going to have these swim lanes allocated in my proposal. I just talked to a client that needs six swim lanes. Great. We lay them out there. They send from this system into Wells Fargo, back into ours, back to here. So again, you look for those are swim lanes. You look for allocations and budgetary you know, placeholders for those types of services as well. There shouldn't be any gaps, as I would say, and, and you look at the thoroughness, and to Brian's point, the thoroughness of the proposal is imperative, right? What's missing? Okay. And again, granularity, the devil's in the details. Summary level proposals, they don't fly for me. We use a, a Microsoft project plan that we deliver with a proposal, which in instance is the five-level breakdown structure of the estimate that may be at two levels and summary in a proposal. But they have the level of detail that really, again, substantiates the scope that the budget correlates to, right? Because if they give you, hey, it's $200,000, well, where's the scope? Oh, and then they dig in and they find the scope and it's 1.8. There's, there's a problem because your contract didn't have the requisite amount of detail. So stand, stand fast on that. Ask for more to be incorporated. Hey, you need to put that in. Put some more exhibits in there. Make sure you have all that evidence in the contract, again, of the scope. And another way that it's described is outcomes. What do you want out of the system? So to Brian's point, hey, we did all this. I didn't get what I wanted. Okay, again, this is your impetus that besides the business process support, what are the outcomes that you expect as an owner? You can make those contractual as well. And again, you have to have good basis to come back and measure your vendor's performance, again, those outcomes. So a couple of examples based on just my experience in writing those agreements. Yeah, accountability. Would, it's accountability is what it is. And, well, and, I, would, I would say the, the key for me is thou shall never have post-contract due diligence. I mean, <laughs> that, I mean, it's never. I mean, if you allow that, you kind of deserve what you what, what what's coming to you because you've just opened. There should never be an, an incident where you would allow post-contract due diligence, and that diligence has to happen whether um, at, at any point, whether it's done before or after. I'm telling you, it has to be before you sign that contract. So you're not saving any time by agreeing a contract and then allowing someone to open it all up because post-contract due diligence has never lowered your price. Um, I can I can tell you that. But the biggest thing is you just don't allow it, and you can't even you can't even assess someone's bid if they haven't done any diligence on your on your uh, environment. You can't even look at it. I would just throw it out. 
Yeah, I'm actually going to have one comment related to the references that you mentioned. And obviously, in the enterprise software industry, there is a big push uh, for references. In my experience, no two ERP implementations are same. Just because you have had 100 successful before, it does not mean that you are probably not going to go over budget in the next one. And just because you have, let's say, two or three different happy customers that you are posing as your shiny stars, that does not mean that the project is not going to go over budget. And one more thing that is about the due diligence in case of software project, especially if you have not had any experience implementing an ERP project before, it's going to be super hard for you to be able to do the due diligence. So what are some of the things that these executives can do? Let's say, you know, if everybody is going to have these happy references and they are going to be all happy customers, so what am I checking when I'm 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 talking to these customers? Does we have any examples there by any chance? Sure, you're asking methodology. I mean, that's another part of this that we didn't talk about is to make sure that there's a, a strict cadence and methodology that governs over how the project executes from analysis to design to this, you know, development to operation. But that's something you're going to check with the references you talk to also is how was their methodology? How about project management? Again, no assumptions. Who's running, the, you know, who's managing this thing? But the execution by the partner organization that's implementing, that's a big part of this as well. And that, again, methodology is contractual for me. It's embedded in the agreement. So there's no surprises there. But it's also two-way contractual, which means you as the end user, you better align and you better perform on your side or you're in breach of the agreement. So that's a two-sided thing. It's not the partners that most often fail. A lot of times the end users drop the ball on their responsibilities. So again, just keep that in mind that methodology is two-sided. Yeah, I would say company doesn't necessarily mean, and getting a reference about a company doesn't mean, doesn't guarantee success. I've had, you know, as an advisor uh, way back in my career, I've had, you know, one, one, uh, one implementation super successful and one a complete disaster, same company. So I think one of the things is make sure you know the team that's going to, you know, the pursuit team might be really flashy, might be the A team, but they're, they might, they're probably not going to be the folks that are going to be landing it for you. So make sure you understand and you know who's actually meet those folks. Spend time with them. Make sure you're just going to spend a lot of money, especially in an ERP doing an integration. Make sure you make, take the time to make, get intimate with those folks. Make sure they've got the skill set and the match to your culture to be able to deliver that for you. Put them in the contract as well. To that point, Mike, right? Get the resources identified. Put their bios in the contract so that you're not getting a bait and switch where, hey, I thought I had Bobby and then I got Lazy Larry or whatever. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, key personality is a good construct. Yep. And, and I would say, you know, also the these contracts, what, what's really important is the work that's being done before the contract's even, you know, brought to the table. You know, is anyone bringing in an executive advisor that has deep experience in, the, you know, this space? and the technology that you're looking to bring on board. So, you know, bringing in the right people ahead of time to help you as a business leader to even know, what am I looking for? What am I looking out for? Like, you, you know, leveraging somebody else's uh, hindsight is, is, is incredibly powerful to making sure you select the right vendor, you get the right contract, and that you have successful implementation. Just, you know, if I was to go out and just do it on my own by myself, I'm going to make a ton of you know mistakes, but uh, there are a lot of people out there that are really experts in this space that really you leverage that. You know, it's going to cost you a bit of money up front, but it's going to save you a whole lot more on the back end. So one of the problems I'm seeing a lot more nowadays is we've gotten the methodologies and how to migrate off of one ERP to the to a new one, and better methodologies and migration tools. That's gotten very good, and the cost of 
doing that kind of work has gone down accordingly. But that's not where the clients are really struggling. The clients are having problems with radical reimagination of how they want work processes to occur, and they need a lot of help on that. And that's more or less going to be more often is going to require some on-site time and some real reimagination work. So what we need are skills, and they need to be baked into the contract. And it's hard to document, like, what is it you're looking for when you want someone who's very aware, very cosmopolitan, who knows what else, what the art of the possible is, and can bring that to bear. That's, that is hard to do. But I agree with all the points. If you can identify who some of these best people are, put them in the contract. And let me add to that. There is one kind of person that makes one of these things really successful, and that is get a project manager on the team that has done two or three ERP deals successfully in the past. Because what that one person can do is they know where all the really bad paths are. They know this is this is a lane you don't want to go down because it just won't work out. And they can save you a whole lot of heartache along the way. Finally, get somebody who's got political capital to burn on this project. Because as you do these big, bold reimaginations, they're going to hit all kinds of uh, conflict in their own organization. Because people, like little children, hate change. And they are going to fight you on, on things all the time. See? You need somebody who can shove them out of the way and get this thing done. All right, guys, we are about time, and we want to make sure that we have at least 20 to 30 seconds time for everybody to provide their closing advice. So I am actually going to start with you, Michael. So for manufacturer, when you look at the software side, which you're not as familiar as with making the widget, you got to approach it the same as you implement a new addition to your building or launch a new product line. you got to really do due diligence. If you don't have the resources, go find the resources. And when you sign the paper, make sure you understand what's in the paper. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much, Michael, for uh, that. Mike, I'm going to move to you now. Do you have any closing thoughts in 20 seconds? Yeah, know what you're signing up for. Take the time to, to research and know the market and make sure it's the right thing for you. And focus focus on the people that are delivering it. In the end, it's the people that are delivering it that, that will either make or break it. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much, Mike, for those thoughts. Brian, do you have anything to add? I would say these contract vendors continue to evolve and change contracts on a daily basis. And almost all of us on this call, we don't see them every single day. We don't deal with them every day. So if there is no shame in getting help. And if you, you know, whether it's your own in-house counsel or outside experts, get help and don't ever sign a contract you don't understand. Amazing. Love it. Okay, Tim, what is your closing? advice. Yep. I'm going to echo that same sentiment. Bring in the experts. If you don't know, if you've never played with it in this space, bring in somebody that has um, or bring in a team and that that will just pay dividends on the on the project. Okay. Amazing. Thank you so much, Tim, for that. Chris, your closing advice? Yeah. Final comments. Um, scope. You know, make sure you clearly detailed defined scope of your project. That is those specific business processes and make sure it's embedded into your agreement. And that correlates to the budget that's being provided for that scope. You add scope, it's going to cost more. There's no question about it, but that's what I would say. All right. Amazing. Thank you so much, guys. And my personal takeaway from this conversation uh, conversation is going to be for any manufacturing or distribution executives out there, if you are signing this for the first time, you really need to embrace that process. The software implementation is typically hard. You need to know a lot more variables. So if this is first time, as everybody has pointed out, maybe ask for help or maybe just do research on your own and understand each of the elements of the contract before signing that. On that note, I would like to thank you everybody for, for your time. This has been a powerful conversation. Uh, on that note, thank you so much, everybody. This has been an awesome conversation. Thanks, Thanks everybody. I cannot thank our guests enough for coming on the show, for sharing their knowledge and journey. 
I always pick up learnings from our guests and hopefully you learned something new today. If you want to learn more about Brian Somer, head over to vitalanalysis.com. It's V-I-T-A-L-A-N-A-L-Y-S-I-S.com. If you want to learn more about Michael Swajanhafer, head over to acuity.com. It's A-C-U-I-T-Y.com. If you want to learn more about Chris Garadini, head over to churnkeytech.com. It's T-U-R-N-K-E-Y-T-E-C.com. If you want to learn more about Tim Harrison, head over to warmcommerce.com. It's W-A-R-M-C-O-M-M-E-R-C-E.com. If you want to learn more about Mike O'Brien, head over to apporchid.com. It's A-P-P-O-R-C-H-I-D.com. Links and more information will also be available in the show notes. If anything in this podcast resonated with you and your business, you might want to check other related episodes, including the interview with Brian Somer, who discusses why legacy ERP systems and artificial accounting practices need to change with time. Also, the interview with Michael Swajanhofer, who discusses how insurance companies evaluate manufacturers' risk profiles. Also, don't forget to subscribe and spread the word among folks with similar backgrounds. If you have any questions or comments about the show, please review and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform or DM me on any social channels. I'll try my best to respond personally and make sure you get help. Thank you, and I hope to catch you on the next episode of the WBS Podcast. Thank you for listening to another episode of the WBS Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform so you never miss an episode. For more information on growth strategies for SMBs using ERP and digital transformation, check out our community at wbs.rocks. We'll see you next time.